If you have your Bibles, would you please open to the book of Mark? As you know, we're in, uh, going through the book of Mark and we're making our way towards the end. We're in chapter 13. And so please open there um, as today we finish that chapter. We're in part two of a, of a little sermon series called Enduring to the End, and we're going to finish that today. And Pastor Todd shared with you last week that our big idea for these two weeks is the same, and it is this, that following Jesus means I am more focused not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present. And we're going to see that same big idea uh, repeated today and echoed again today. If you have your Bibles open in uh, Mark chapter 13, look real quick at the last verse at Mark 13. This is where we're going to get today. This is where we're going to end. Is the final verse of Mark 13, and it's the main command in our text today, and it says this, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's where we're headed, is Jesus' commands to his disciples, his followers, to stay awake. I remember this being shown in my life in a kind of odd, interesting way, and I'll share with you a quick story as we dive into our text. When I was about 19 or 20 years old, I was in college, I was at Bible college, and it was like the beginning of May, and so it was finals season. You remember that, adults, finals remember studying, cramming, getting ready for that, how stressful that was. And I went to a Bible college in my home state, in my home county. And for some reason, that exact week, I got picked for jury duty. And I don't know why, but I couldn't get out of it. Maybe I didn't try, but I wanted to maybe get out of the finals. Maybe that's what I was trying to think. It didn't work. So I would go to my professors and say, hey, I got jury duty. I even got picked for the trial, too. So they're like, okay, just show up after you're done and we'll do the finals one-on-one um, -on -one or whatever, give you the papers. And so all day long, I'd be in a, a trial and then in the evening, I'd have to go take the finals. Terrible. As a 19-year-old, I had very poor work ethic at that moment. And so just studying and cramming and doing whatever I could to get out of this, out of the, the trial and get the finals done, it was terrible. Well, I'm uh, sitting on the jury panel, you know, the two rows, and I'm in the front row. I remember it like it was yesterday, and um, I fell asleep, and I remember it so clear. I was juror number 10, and I was told this story after I woke up later. The judge had to say to juror number 11, uh, juror number 11, can you wake up juror number 10? And juror number 11 poked me on the shoulder and said, hey, wake up, and I'm just exhausted, and I kind of come to, and I see the, the judge's eyes of judgment. <laughs> and in front of the entire courtroom, he just reamed me out, called me out, and said, son, I know this trial probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but to everyone in this room, it means a whole lot to, and I just melted. I was so embarrassed and devastated that I took this not very seriously. And it's funny because this judge unknowingly quoted Matthew chapter 25, 26 to me, which was, you wicked and slothful servant. <laughs> he called me out. He reminded me of how little I cared and how I wasn't working hard and I wasn't taking this seriously 
And my judge, my county judge, called me out and told me to wake up and to pay attention and to get to work. That's our text today, is our judge, our true and beautiful and perfect judge, is calling us to wake up. He's looking at us as his servants and telling us to get to work, stay focused, stay alert, do the task that I've called you to do. Don't be slothful. Take this seriously. It's an important task. It's an important game. My prayer is that today would be a gentle or maybe a firm poke on the shoulder, a firm reminder to those of us who are sleepy to wake up and to become the faithful servants Christ has called us to be. We're in chapter 13, and Todd showed us where we were headed and gave us a little outline of this. And Mark chapter 13 is, is just simply, it's a conversation with Jesus and his disciples. He loves these men. He cares for these men. He's been living with these men. And now they're at a point where they're asking him some questions. They see the beautiful temple. It starts a conversation. And so don't forget that Mark chapter 13 is a, is a loving conversation, He's not berating them. He's not yelling at them. He's loving them. He cares about his followers. And he's sharing with them some concerns he has as they move on in the narrative. He's loving and talking to his friends. And he's telling them about their near future and then their distant future. That's chapter 13. And he tells them both. And he tells them about their near future, that the temple will be destroyed that fierce persecution will come to the followers of Jesus, that false teachers will rise up, and even some will who profess to be the Christ. And he tells them, don't believe it. And then he tells them in the next paragraph about the distant future. And he tells them about the end times, of his return, of how Christ, the Christ, will return in the clouds, the Son of Man. He'll return in the clouds. Like, that's where you'll know that, that the Son of Man, that the, the, the Christ is here. He'll come in the clouds. And then he'll take the elect, and he'll take them to glory. And he'll protect them and save them. And he's giving his disciples, his friends, he's giving them warnings, he's giving them expectations, and he's giving them the good news of his return. That's Mark chapter 13. And then, at the end, the text that we're going to look at today He's going to illustrate these two events with two parables or two illustrations or two images. Jesus is the master storyteller, helps things make sense and come together so that they'll never be forgotten. So our text today is those two parables or stories or illustrations. We're going to look at those in light of what Jesus has already said to his disciples about the near future and the distant future. And it's going to help us apply why the end times or why future events are important to us. So let's start with the first one, the parable of the fig tree in verses 28 through 31. I'd like to read those for you. Mark chapter 13, verses 28 to 31 says this, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's the parable of the fig tree. And from the parable of the fig tree, from the fig tree, we're to learn its lesson. And its lesson is this. Just as a year has seasons, so the history of the earth will have seasons. I think that's what he's showing them. Just as you have winter, spring, summer, and fall, so life will have different seasons and and you'll experience different ebbs and flows of life here on earth. Picture, Picture this if it's possible. This is what Jesus is helping them see. Picture this. It's the dead of winter. Everything is frozen. Nothing is growing. Everything looks gray and dead and lifeless. Can you picture that? Central Iowans, have you ever seen that scene? Everything looks dead. And now, in the picture of that scene, there's a single fig tree. You got it? Can you paint that picture in your mind? That's the picture that he draws for them. And when it's cold and gray and dark and dead, and do you ever in that season... You think that summer will never come? Does it ever feel that way? Like, man, another 15-degree day? Oh, my goodness. I'm so done with this. That maybe this, that's, this is our new reality. We just live in an eternal winter. That's where we're at. We moved to central Iowa. This is what we get. And then do you ever, maybe just me, find yourself on realtor.com looking at homes and Scottsdale, Arizona, or Naples, Florida. Like, how did I get here? This is weird. Am I dreaming a little bit, I guess? But then, but then, this weekend is a perfect description of this. You get a few 40-degree days, and the snow starts to melt, and you hear birds chirping, and all of a sudden, that dead-looking fig tree starts to bud. And it will be that tree and those buds that are a sign of hope to you. It's a sign that something good and necessary is on its way. Hang in there. Winter will come to an end. It's how it works. We will make it. Spring will come. This is the phrase, April showers bring May flowers. Hang in there. It gets better. And this is all necessary for the beauty of spring and summer to come. These are good things. This first parable are verses that are a call to remember the faithfulness of God during hard times, or maybe even the hardest of times, which would be the disciples' reality very soon. Just think about what the disciples are about to face in just about three days. In just about three days, the disciples' leader who they gave up everything for, he would be killed. And then after Jesus is killed, he would leave them and they would face terrible persecution. For the rest of their existence, these disciples would face terrible persecution. And then eventually, the holy temple, the one, the the building, the structure that they loved and they looked to, it would crumble, it would be destroyed in 70 AD. And then eventually, either before that or soon after that, these disciples would lose their lives. They would be put to death for being followers of Christ. And Jesus is telling them, but be encouraged. During these dark, hard winter months, these difficult days, the king is near. Don't give up. 
He's given his disciples a glimpse of the tragedy that is to come, but also hope and a promise that Christ will still be on his throne. He hasn't lost control. Don't give up when sorrow and persecution come. Christ is at the very gates. The Son of Man is at the very gates. Christ is telling his disciples, take hope. These difficult days which are ahead are actually the signs that good things are near. These events are the opening act before the king makes his entrance. This is, these events, these difficult days are the red carpet that is rolled out before the hero takes the scene. Like you can endure if you know the end is coming, that good things are coming. You can endure difficult days. Then he concludes this story by saying, you see, even, even heaven and earth will pass away. Like everything will eventually pass away. It's gonna get that difficult or that hard. Everything's gonna pass away, but, but you can trust God's word will never fail. Your firm foundation during difficult days is not anything circumstantial. It can't be. Your firm foundation, the thing that helps you keep going, it can't be something circumstan uh, circumstantial, like a good job, good health, a relationship, a retirement plan, because all of those can go away in a moment. They can't be what keeps you going. Instead, your firm foundation is in the promises of God, because it will never fail. It'll never go away. That's the one thing that will endure forever. We'll endure the difficult winter months. C.S. Lewis wrote an entire book about the eternal winter called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's about this idea of an eternal winter and discouragement and heartache and how to keep hope and how to keep living for God and how to keep enduring. And there's a famous line in that book that goes like this. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Don't give up. Good things are coming. Hope is near. The victor is on his way. That is the lesson from the fig tree that one day all wrongs will be made right when the Son of God appears and he is near. And the signs of the days, the events of the days are proof that he is near. And then the second parable is verses 32 through 37. And as the book of Matthew calls this, we're gonna jump over to Matthew chapter 25 a little bit. So just be prepared for that because it's the same story with a little bit more detail. Matthew calls this section the parable of the talents and he gives us a little bit more detail. So the second parable is the parable of the talents. And this is an illustration of the end times, the, the distant future of one day what will happen and our responsibility. It goes like this. In Mark chapter 13, it reads this way. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. That is so interesting. But only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake 
Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the second illustration that he gives him, and this is an illustration of the second coming of Christ at the end of the age when the king returns. And Jesus first answers their question of when, when will the end come? And Jesus says to them, no one knows. No one knows except the father. No one knows when the end will come, the date, the time. No one knows except the father. And if the son didn't know the date, we should never dare believe someone who claims to know the date. If Jesus, the son of God, didn't know, who else then could know? This parable tells us that in the near future, Christ was going to leave his disciples. Then after an unknown period of time, he will return seeking the results of their labor. That's the story. And then he tells them, this is what you should be doing while you wait. This is the point of the parable. Don't worry about the time. Don't worry about when, but instead worry about what. What should I be doing while I wait? And he summarizes it, or all summarize it this way. He says, you're my servants who I will leave in charge with orders. That's what he tells them. This is what you do. The first thing he tells them in this parable is that they are his servants. That's really interesting. Make sure you uh, note that. He calls them his servants. This is Jesus reminding the disciples who they are. You are not the king, he's telling them. The king is the owner of everything. You are his servants. You serve him. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget who you are in your role. Let's not ever think that we're the king, that we're in charge. You see, maybe the reason some of us don't do what we're called to do as followers of Christ is because we've forgotten who he has called us to be. You see, we are servants, not free. This was Todd's sermon just a couple weeks ago about the, the lie of autonomy. We believe we're free, that we are our own, that we are in charge, that we are the kings and we're not. He then tells his servants that they are in charge. This is interesting. In charge has this idea of respect. Like they are servants, but they're respected servants. He puts them in charge. He gives them a high level of trust. He gives them decision-making power. He calls them competent. Like your servants, you do what I tell you, but, but I'm gonna trust you to make some decisions. You're in charge, but being in charge is different than autonomy. Like you, you still represent, you still report to somebody. This is the difference between a shift manager and an owner for all of you that work at Chick-fil-A, which I feel is most of us. So <laughs> this is the difference, right? You, you have some decision-making power, but you are not in charge. The owner will come back seeking the profit. Thomas, a little plug for Thomas there. What we will work, we will do, but it's all under his authority. And we will do, the last thing he tells us, we will do his orders. There are expectations. And this is where Matthew chapter 25 is so helpful because it gives us more of these exp expectations. Matthew 25 kind of digs a little bit deeper into this story that Jesus was telling them in the parable of the, town, ta uh, the talents. It says this in Matthew chapter 25, that he leaves them and he entrusts his property to them 
and he gives them his talents to work with, whatever that is. And then says that the master expects them to use the talents and to yield a return. And that return is expected, or it's fair to even say that that return is demanded, required. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 25 in this story, Jesus, or the, the, the master, comes back and he praises the one who used their talents well, and then he scolds the one who buries the talent and hides his talent. And when the owner comes back, he merely gives the owner back what he gave him. You remember that? He scolds him and says, why didn't you get to work? Why didn't you put that to use? Why did you merely return me what I gave you? And then his command in the last verse of chapter 13 of Mark is this, stay awake. That's what you're called to do, wake up. Be alert, stay active, don't get lazy. You see, the point of this parable, the second parable, is to teach the disciples, don't worry about when, don't worry about when it will happen, but instead stay faithful doing what I've asked you to do. Followers of Christ, let's not get lazy. Let's not get discouraged. Let's not get distracted while the owner is away. Let's stay focused. Let's work hard for his honor and his glory. So now those are the two parables, kind of explain them to you. I wanna just take a few moments today and, and apply these principles to us, okay? He, this is Jesus loving his disciples about 2,000 years ago, telling them what their expect, his expectations are for them, what he demands from them, okay? We're 2,000 years removed from this story. Let's look at this and help us see how, what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to apply this to our lives, or, or maybe we should answer the question, why does studying the end times matter? What's the purpose of the win in thinking about the end times? If we don't know when the Son of Man will return, if we're told you don't know the time, you'll never know the time, he's just gonna come back, uh, if, if it's not possible to know, then why even think about the end times? Why should we spend time wrestling with them if we don't know when? And I wanna take three things from our passage today that helps us understand that the end times is super important to wrestle with and, and how understanding the end times is helpful. Why should we wrestle with this and think about this? Doesn't discussing end times seem to just divide and cause conflict and people argue and debate over different views and, and theologies? Like what's the good in this? Let me, let me give you three. Three reasons why knowing your end times and thinking about end times and studying about them are super helpful. Number one, understanding the end times teaches us how the story ends. And it's all good news. When we think about the end times, one thing we agree on in this room, 100% of us agree, hopefully, is that the king's gonna return. Isn't that good news? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that helpful? Like we're not left in the eternal winter. That's where we're in and it's hard and it's difficult. And then understanding the end time says he's gonna return. Praise Jesus that he's gonna return to collect his elect and to rescue us and to call us and to redeem us and to take us home. That's why we should think about end times is because it's all good news. It's like knowing we win the game before we play it. Wouldn't you, knowing you win, play the game differently 
Of course you would. You'd be bold, you'd take risks, you'd give it everything, you'd be pumped up, you'd be so excited, like, I know this is gonna end well, time to go. That'd be awesome. That's the good news of studying the end times. We know who wins. We know what ends well. We know what our eternity will look like. So be bold, take risks, give it everything. Number two, why is it good to understand the end times? Because it helps us understand the problems with the world today. You're in an eternal winter. Doesn't that help you kind of like, okay, that makes sense why it's hard. That makes sense why it's difficult. The chaos, the, the news stories, the wars, the famines, the, the persecution of Christians, like all of that makes sense when you study the end times because you know difficult days are here and are near and are in the future. Knowing what the Bible says about the end times should change the way we watch the news. I'm not a huge news watcher unless you count ESPN. But when I do watch the news, I kind of get discouraged and disappointed because it's all terrible. But understanding Jesus' words to his disciples say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He did, he did tell us this was coming. He did tell us this would be our reality, that it would look like this. He mentioned several in our text today. He mentions false teachers. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecutions of Christians. Do any of those sound familiar? Yeah, they all do. This is the world we live in, this winter. And lastly, understand the end times is helpful because it helps us endure to the end. Focusing and thinking about the end times helps us endure to the end. It helps us stay awake. Because considering the end times keeps our eyes from focusing too much on our situation. When you think about the end times, it sets your eyes forward. It takes your eyes off of you and helps you think of the bigger story. Because most of the day, can I be honest, I'm really focused on my story. Think about my day, what I got to get accomplished, how my life can go well, what I got to do during the day so I can relax in the evening. Like most of the day, I'm thinking about Travis. The end times say, hey, think about something bigger. Lift your eyes. Focus on the big story. Focus on the, the story that God is writing. Quit focusing so much on your story because that gets discouraging pretty quick. Focus on God's story, what he is telling you. That helps me to endure. So in the difficult Travis days, I can lift my eyes and say, but God's got this. He's bigger than me. He's bigger than us. He's bigger than the world. He's got it all. I can relax. I can breathe. I can take a moment and just enjoy. I'm a big catechism guy. I think they're helpful. I really like them. I ran across this one as I was preparing for this message. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism Question 52. I hope this helps you breathe. Just think about this. I'm going to read it for you. Read it slowly. It's kind of long, but it is beautiful. Here's the question. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? That is such a profound, awesome question. Why, why is there comfort? Why is there comfort in knowing that the judge is going to return? How can we have comfort in that? Here's the answer. 
in all my sorrow, in all my persecution, it, it lift, I lift my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He, he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Isn't that beautiful? Like the judge is coming to return and he's gonna judge with, with anger, right? Like the sin of the world, he's gonna punish. So how is that possibly good news? Because that same judge who's gonna judge the world already paid the penalty for your sin. So the judge is not gonna come against the elect. He's gonna come against the unbelievers. So when the judge returns, it's praise the Lord, the one who already fought my battle, the one who already forgave me, the one who already redeemed me, the one who already stood in my place. This is the illustration you've heard before of the judge gets out of the judge's seat, puts himself in the persecuted seat and says, I'll take the penalty. I'll take that. I know he's guilty, but I got it. That's the one that's gonna return. We don't have to fear that. He already paid your price. He already paid your penalty. You don't have to fear the coming judge. He is for you. He loves you. He cares about you. And one day he'll scoop you up and take you home. It's so beautiful. You see, nothing will encourage you to endure better. Nothing will encourage you to endure better than the story of the gospel. That Christ died for you, rose from the grave, and will one day return to judge the world and to rescue his children. Nothing will encourage you more, but nothing will discourage you or distract you spiritually quicker than thinking that this life is all about your story. That this life is the most important thing in all the world. And that this life was meant to be easy, peaceful, and long. If that's your view of earth, of your 70, 80, 90, 100 years, if that's your view, nothing will discourage you quicker. Because the moment it's not easy, peaceful, and long, you're devastated. But the moment you focus your eyes on Christ and his story of forgiveness and redemption for a wretched sinner like you, nothing will help you to endure more. And that's what Jesus is telling his loving disciples. Don't focus on when, focus on what you should be doing. Just a reminder of our big idea, where we're headed. Following Jesus means I am more focused, not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present. So I just wanna end with a couple challenges. A couple things to do this week. A couple ways to stay focused, to stay awake. Just a couple reminders for us. How do we stay awake? That's the question. 
How do we, this week, how do I stay awake? Okay, that sounds good. You're right. I need to focus less on me and I need to think more about God and his story. You're right. How, how do I stay awake? Well, our, our story gives us several. Let me tell you them. Number one, don't forget who you work for. Number one, the best way to stay awake is don't forget who you work for. Remember my jury duty illustration? I fell asleep because finals were way more important to me than this traffic accident, right? I forgot who I worked for. The judge was convinced I worked for him. I was convinced I worked for my history professor and I got that wrong and I didn't care, right? This is, helps us to stay awake. Don't forget who you work for. And our parable, the second parable, reminds us who we work for. We work for the owner, we work for the master. We work for the king. We work for God. We work for the maker of heaven and earth. You don't primarily work for who employs you. That's not who you primarily work for. You don't primarily work for John Deere or Ankeny School District or Principal or Casey's or Uncle Sam those are not who you primarily work for. Those are the mission field that God has sent you to. You work for him regardless of where he sends you. And then in that employment, you serve him. You work for him. They're the mission field you've been sent to. Don't forget who you work for. The moment you forget who you work for, you'll become sleepy. You'll become drowsy. You'll become distracted. You'll become discouraged because work is hard. Number two, how do we stay awake? Don't forget your orders. Don't forget what you've called to do. We serve him. We represent him. We are his ambassadors. We obey his orders. Tomorrow morning, okay? Tomorrow's Monday, I'm sorry. You're gonna go back to work. You're gonna go back to school. You've got something you've gotta do tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, when you get ready for work or for school, would you pray and ask God to help you serve him really well tomorrow? As you get dressed, maybe as you have your quiet time, as you're drinking your cup of coffee, take a moment and pray and say, God, I work for you. I, I do your orders. I serve you. I live for you. I work and serve you more than anything else. Today, I wanna represent you well. Today, I wanna live like Jesus would have lived. I want to do what I'm called to do. I wanna make much of you. Pray and ask God to help you live like Jesus would have. Remember, remember your master's final orders to his servants before he left them. In the book of Matthew, it's Matthew 28, which Taylor referenced, it was this. He says to his disciples, he's looking at his disciples right before he leaves them, his final orders to the men he loved, the men he cherished, the men he cared so much for, he looked at them and said, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's your orders, Tomorrow, go. Go to John Deere. Go to Ankeny School District. Go to Casey's. Go wherever you work and make disciples. No matter where you have to go tomorrow, go. Go faithfully. Work hard. Remember who you work for primarily and do his orders. Make disciples. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them he loves them. 
He's coming back to get them. He forgave them on the cross. Tell them about that. And then lastly, how do we stay awake? Don't forget what we are waiting for. That's just to keep your eyes up. Stay focused. Don't forget what you're waiting for. What are we waiting for? What are we working towards? The salvation of God's people. That's why we wait, because God is being patient so that many will repent. That's why you're waiting. Don't forget that. Waiting's a good thing. More people are getting saved. Today, somebody will get saved because of God's patience. Tomorrow, people will get saved because of God's patience. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Don't forget why you're waiting. I don't like waiting, but if more people are being saved, I'll wait. Don't forget that we're waiting for our bridegroom to return. Ooh, that's an exciting day. Those of you that are married, remember being engaged? Just like, come on, stinking wedding. It's taking forever. That you weren't mad about that. You were excited. Man, I can't wait. My, my wife and I were engaged three months. During those three months, I was in, in, in an internship. So we did not see each other one day, the entire engagement. That was really helpful. I would encourage that, but it was really hard. But when there was no FaceTime. I couldn't, you know, just call or text. It was terrible, but it was good. And it made me long so much for the wedding day in a good way, an excitement. Your bridegroom is returning. Should excite you, should motivate you. And then the last one there is, what are we waiting for? To be found faithful. To hear our judge say something to us. Your judge, the son of man, will come and he's gonna have a conversation with you. This is what Matthew chapter 25 says, that Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna have a conversation with you and hopefully he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Man, I wanna hear those words. I'm willing to work my butt off because I wanna hear those words. I'm willing to do my job because I wanna hear those words. You see, I'm not waiting for the next vacation not waiting for retirement, not waiting for a new toy, a bigger house or the next promotion. Those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Congratulations. But they are not the objective. The objective is to look my judge in the eye and to hear, well done. You did it. You worked hard. What I gave you, you used. Thank you. See, my fear is that a lot of us work really hard. We work really hard, tons of hours, tons of energy, tons of resources. We work the hardest at things that don't matter. Is that you? That's me, guilty. I work really hard. I spend tons of time and energy on things that mean nothing. And then the judge is, going to return and say, what did you do with the orders I told you to do? How did you do with those? And I'm going to be like, well, I had a hobby. My hobby, it, it kind of got in the way a little bit. That's my greatest fear. Instead, our desire should be to stand before the king one day and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. Our greatest fear should be to hear Matthew chapter 25, verse 26. You wicked and slothful servant. That should be your greatest fear. And the, 
king returns and he says, why did you dig a hole and hide what I gave you? Why did you, why did you think that was a good idea? Why did you take the gospel, this treasure, and hide it? And then when I return, you're like, oh, it's in a hole. Let me go get it and give it to you. I kept it safe. Like, why did you think that was a good idea? You wicked and slothful servant. And then in verse 30, he calls him worthless. That's a worthless servant. That's my greatest fear, is to one day be called worthless. Man, how are you, how are you using what God has given you for his purposes and not your own. Today, tomorrow, how are you using what God has given you for his purposes and not your own? You see, if today you aren't living like the faithful servant God has called you to be, then most likely one of these three are off base. Just take a moment of personal reflection. If today you're not living like you want to live, you're not the faithful servant you want to be, then one of those three maybe are off. Take a moment and reflect and say, God, which one? Maybe all three. God, have I forgotten that I work for you primarily? Maybe God, I know I work for you. I just have forgotten what you've called me to do. I thought you wanted me to dig a hole and hide it. I thought that was a good idea. Or maybe, maybe I've forgotten what, why we're waiting or what we're waiting for for the saving of souls, for our bridegroom to return or to be called faithful. Maybe we've forgotten why we're waiting. If you're not the faithful servant you want to be today, one of those three are off. Which one? And then maybe repent. It's not over. You're not done. You have a life still to live. Let's get to work. Let's as a team, as a body, as a congregation, as a local church, as a family, let's get to work for the sake of our king and for the good of all people. Last question. Who was the faithful servant that shared the gospel with you? I've been, in, been able to lead membership class for the last several months and in order to go through membership class, you have to answer that question. Who shared the gospel with you? Aren't you so thankful that that person was faithful Ooh, I am so grateful that that six-year-old Sunday school teacher worked hard. She prepared a lesson that she shared the gospel with me that day instead of worrying more about her hobbies. I'm so grateful that she had the courage to show up to her Sunday school class prepared, looked at a bunch of snotty-nosed sixth graders and say, you know what you guys need? Jesus, can I tell you about him? That's what saved my wretched soul. Aren't you grateful that somebody took their job seriously and shared the gospel with you? It's probably your mom or your dad, Sunday school teacher. Let's do the same. Let's do that. Let's be brave enough and bold enough to open our mouths and to share the gospel with sinners on their way to hell for the sake of our King. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.